In the 1970s or 80s, a group of people from Advent had a good idea. They decided to build a memorial garden next to the church where they could inter people's remains. And they would install a plaque in the church that listed the names of the people who were interred there. That same group of people, I think I can say this because none of them are still here, had a very bad idea, which was to adhere the plaque to the wall with an epoxy so strong it would be impossible to move. I like to imagine that when they were gluing the plaque to the wall, someone asked, well, what if a few decades from now somebody wants to move the plaque? And the person putting the glue on said, well, that sounds like a problem for future Advent. (laughs) Well, we are future Advent. We are the people who have inherited the decisions that people have made years, decades, even centuries before us. As annoying as the glue on that plaque is, it's not a bad reminder to have in church. It reminds us the church never begins and ends with us. It's a church we've inherited from other people with their own beliefs, traditions, and practices. But fortunately for us, we're not stuck with other people's choices. We get to decide what we keep and what we change. We get to decide which practices are life-giving and which traditions have just become a burden. The past is a given, but it's not our destiny. That does mean that we should make those choices with humility. Because someday we will have to pass the church on to other people, too. And we get to decide what kind of legacy we want to leave for our future Advent. We can leave a legacy of relationships and resources or investment, or we can take all of our own golden calves and superglue them to the floor for someone else to deal with. So our decisions are always influenced by what we've received, and they're always guided by what we want to pass on to other people. We depend on the people who came before us. We seek the welfare of the people who come after us. We don't do any of it by ourselves. And you could say the same thing about faith. In today's reading from Hebrews, the author tries to encourage the congregation they're writing to to keep the faith. And the author, whoever he or she is, does it in kind of a funny way. If someone came to us and told us about their struggles with faith, we would probably say, well, tell me about your faith. Tell me about you. Tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your prayer life. Tell me about your spiritual practices. The author of Hebrews does the exact opposite of that. They say, well, don't think about you. Think about the faith of everyone who came before you. Think about the community of people who have built up the faith that you've received, the people you've inherited your faith from. And so we get this long list that Diane read of heroes of the faith that have passed the faith on to us. And these heroes all had obstacles and struggles they had to overcome. One of the people the author talks about is Rahab. Rahab is like the best character in the Hebrew Bible. She's a Canaanite woman who works as a prostitute. And to say that her community pushed her out to the margins isn't just a metaphor. She actually lives in the walls of the city, as far away from the rich and powerful as she can be. And Rahab might be from a totally different society than the Israelites. She might be on the very edge of society, but she has faith in God. And that faith ends up saving the lives of two Israelites. And the story, if you haven't heard it before, is great. 
It involves spies, treachery, escape plans. It's like a Michael Bay movie. It's super dangerous. It involves going out and taking this huge risk. Rahab risks everything when she chooses faith over convenience. And a few centuries later, when Matthew begins his gospel with that long genealogy of Jesus, Aspa, the father of Jeshapat, Jeshapat, the father of Jerem, Jerem, the father of Uzziah, I'll spare you the other 16 verses. Do you know who's in the genealogy? Rahab, a Canaanite woman. So Matthew is saying, the author of Hebrews is saying too, if you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to understand your own faith, then you need to know about this Canaanite woman who lived in the walls of the city centuries ago. If you think God can't use your faith because people tell you that you're the wrong kind of person, you don't fit the right boxes, remember people like Rahab. Without Rahab, you don't get people like Jesus. Ironically for us, the thing that makes the Rahab story so compelling, the excitement, the action, the intrigue, also makes it hard to relate to. Because for many of us, the barrier to faith isn't fear, it isn't danger, it's boredom. We have more in common with another story the author of Hebrews mentions, which is the Israelites walking around Jericho. And I know what you're thinking. That is an exciting story. It's a story about these gigantic walls collapsing. Trip number seven was very exciting. Trip numbers one through six were not. Trip number one, you're probably excited. Trip number two, you're wondering why nothing's happening yet. Trip number four, you're pretty tired. And by trip number six, you're ready to just give it up and go home. But that sixth lap around Jericho is probably the best image that we have of doing ministry together. So much of the ministry we do together feels like we're doing the same thing over and over and over again. We visit the sick over and over again. We celebrate the sacraments over and over again. We give to people in need over and over again. The author of Hebrews makes it sound like faith is this unbelievably exciting thing, but we know that most of the time it's just kind of doing the same old stuff. It doesn't always feel like you're making a big difference. Art Collard hasn't done his weekly trip to the Center for Food Action and been told, well, we solved hunger, so take it somewhere else. Spike from St. Matthew Trinity hasn't called Bob and Carol and said, well, we housed everyone in Hoboken over the weekend, so spare yourself the traffic, stay at home. None of our homebound members have refused communion from me because they just got it last month. It often feels like we're just going around in circles. But the author of Hebrews says that's actually not true. That even when we feel like we're going in circles, our faith is actually being made perfect. And it's being made perfect not because our beliefs are becoming truer, but because we are making Christ's love more evident in the world around us. So even when you feel like you're not doing anything, even when you feel like you're not getting anywhere, you actually are. Oftentimes we just don't know it because our vision isn't broad enough. We forget that just like we have inherited the faith from the people before us, we're passing it on to the people who come after us. And we're always telling them something about what God is doing in Christ, even when we're just doing our ordinary routine things. Let me give you an example of that. 
Earlier this month at the churchwide assembly, we added a new day to our liturgical calendar. June 17th, Juneteenth, will be a day of repentance in the ELCA for the martyrdom of the nine people killed at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston four years ago. We'll commemorate that day together next summer. We'll transfer it to a Sunday if we have to. And when we commemorate it, we will be honoring the Charleston Nine as martyrs. That word is important. The word martyr comes from the Greek word for witness. So when we use the word martyr, we don't just mean that these people died and they also happened to check some demographic box. And we don't even mean that this person was killed because of their faith. When we call someone a martyr, we're saying that their faith was shown through in the way that they died. That their deaths actually tell us something about God. That's why we don't simply grieve martyrs, but martyrs inspire us. They help us grow in faith. Why did the Charleston Nine inspire us? Because when a visitor showed up and asked to join their Bible study, they said, yeah. They welcomed the stranger. They took him into their spiritual home. They treated him the way that Jesus would have. That should give us faith that we can be a part of God's redeeming work, too. That we can be a part of that cloud of witnesses. Clementa, Cynthia, Sharonda, Tawanza, Ethel, Susie, Depayne, Daniel, and Myra are part of that cloud. So is Rahab. So were the Israelites who got up and did lap number six around Jericho. And so were the people on that plaque in the hallway. The people who encourage us to grow in faith and hope and love, who inspire us to run the race with joy, knowing that Jesus has already perfected our faith. That the only death we have to fear is behind us, and the only life we have to achieve is the one that's been given to us. And here's the other thing. The thing the author of Hebrews only implies but doesn't come out and actually say. Which is that we are all a part of that cloud of witnesses too. You are someone else's support and encouragement. And you probably don't even realize the times you're doing it. The heroes of the faith the author of Hebrews talks about never described themselves as heroes. They just thought they were being faithful. Rahab trusted she didn't have to be afraid. The Israelites kept on walking. Clementa pulled up an extra chair. The heroes aren't the ones who get the applause or draw attention to their piety. The heroes are the ones who engage in those quiet, subtle acts of revolution. That kind of faith isn't always exciting, it isn't always noteworthy, it isn't always transcendent. It's better than that. It's perfect. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.